Hello, it's Alison Farmer here. I'm Head of English at Hutchins. It's Friday the 28th of February and I have Jeff Goodfellow, performance poet from South Australia, with me here in the studio and he's a great friend of Hutchins. Jeff, have you been visiting Hutchins since the 90s? Very early 90s, I reckon, Alison, yeah. perhaps 1991. And I think pretty much every year Yeah, it's been then, consecutive. A lovely tradition that you come and share your poetry with our boys. We really appreciate it and welcome today. Thank you and nice to be here. Great. Perhaps, Jeff, if you could tell us a little bit about your career uh, just so that people can get to know the full range of what you've been doing. Right. Well, I didn't start writing until I was 32 years of age. I left school at 15, worked in a variety of different physical jobs, hurt my back at... uh, 32, uh, began to write after reading a book and after reading the book once, which, you know, was a bit of a milestone for me because I'd never read anything at school. I'd never been shown anything that vaguely resembled my lifestyle when I was a student. Uh, But reading this book of poetry uh, spoke to me and after reading it once, I thought, I'll read it again. I read it a second time and I thought, I reckon I can write this sort of stuff myself and it took off. Can you remember the who was the, the author? Yeah, it was Banjo Patterson. It was probably ah. someone that I wouldn't go back and read now. Uh, but An Australian um, classic. Yeah, Australian classic. But um, And then after reading Banjo Patterson, I then ran, read uh, Henry Lawson and mm-hmm. poems like Faces in the Street of Henry Lawson. I could go back and read mm-hmm. that any day of the week and love it. Mm. And it, in fact, influenced me to write my poem Swanson Street, which is in No Ticket, No Start. Yes. But my very first book came out in uh, Adelaide, uh, came out in 1986 at Adelaide Writers' Week, uh, No Cause, No Cuffs, and that has now gone through nine printings, followed by Bowtie and Tales in 1987, in four printings, uh, No Ticket, No Start, Poets from the Building Sites mm. in 1990, I stopped work on every major building and construction site in Australia, read poetry to building workers, but also wrote poems about them. And that book had phenomenal sales, 10,000 in less than a year. Wow. Which is incredible for poetry sales anywhere in the world, let alone Adelaide. But Mm. it found a new audience for poetry. And what I've been trying, striving to do for my career is to open the audience up for poetry and make people more uh, interested in becoming uh, readers of poetry. And that attracted an audience of building workers, who you know, normally wouldn't be reading poetry. No. Uh, that was that, that's the stereotype, isn't it? Yeah. But yeah, in fact, obviously, you found that they were really uh, ready and receptive to. to they poetry. were receptive because everyone wants to. Everyone looks in mirrors. Everyone looks in shop fronts. Everyone wants to see their reflection, mm. and uh, giving them poems about their working life. Uh, made them realise that their lives do carry some dignity after all and they could go home and say to their son, hey, cop that, you know, mm. read page 17, you'll find me there. Mm. Um, yeah. It really gave them a sense of um, of belonging. Yeah. Well, in a way, that's sort of what Banjo Patterson was doing too for yeah, the, yeah. the workers well, the, uh, in, in rural Australia. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And he was sort of celebrating their lives and their work and, and certainly showing that they had dignity. Yeah, and what I thought when I when I read that was people 
don't live that sort of life anymore. We're uh, fringe dwellers. We live around the, the uh, coasts yes. of Australia. Mm. We're not jumping on horses. We're jumping into cars mm. or we're jumping on motorbikes. And I thought I could be writing about urban life in Australia mm. in a different era. And yeah. that was the impetus. That's great. Yeah, thank you. And um, you, can you tell us the reason that you stopped working on working sites? And yeah, well, and, work, and you found yourself reading that book of poetry for the first time. Yeah. Well, 20 years of hard work, I'd ruptured two discs in the bottom of my spine, crippled mm. myself and spent a good deal of time in traction. And I had an orthopaedic specialist hovering over me with a scalpel wanting to open me up. Yeah. But I'd worked with enough men on building sites to know that those back operations in the early 1980s were not really very successful mm. and often left scar tissue that uh, didn't enable any sort of uh, therapy to mm. be able to get through. That's so no you were left with mm. residual pain and I thought, I'm not going to have the back operation. And I, I went home, went to physiotherapists, acupuncturists, iridologists, Chinese men in Eastville, garages, anyone and everyone, until an old football player in Adelaide uh, who was a champion football player, Ken Eustace, a McGarry medalist in South Australia, in fact, which is like the equivalent of the Brownlow, he said, go and see Geoffrey Maitland, he's my manipulative physiotherapist, he got me going when I was playing footy and I saw him and, and Maitland said, you come and see me every day for three months and I'll get you upright again. Wow. And I was twisted to one side and twisted forward and he got me standing upright. And during that period of time, uh, I had begun to write and occasionally I would show Maitland some of the poems that I was writing, which were dreadful poems at the time. <laughs> But Maitland encouraged me and Maitland said, you're never going to be able to go back and do this physical work again. You're going to have to have a job where you can lie down, where you can stand up, where you can say, look, I can't go to work for a week. Uh, he said, you know, you, your life is going to be dramatically different after this event. And he said, you need to go to university and, and uh, do something. Mm. And I said, I can't go to university. I said, I never passed year 10. I said, I wouldn't pass the entrance exam. And he said, you don't have to do it. He said, they have to take you because you've got a back injury. So mm. I went to uni thinking that I was an idiot, having been told I was an idiot, but I got seven distinctions out of the nine subjects. Wow. And I realised that I wasn't as silly as I looked, and which <laughs> gave me a degree of confidence too. Mm. Uh, I also uh, had published a poem in 1983. My first ever free verse poet poem was published in spring of 1983. Uh, and after I had that first free verse poem published, because prior to that I was writing sort of rhyming couplets, mm. but I realised very quickly by looking around and by going to poetry readings that if I were going to be writing, I should be writing free verse if I wanted to be published. And I couldn't see the sense in writing without being published. No. So I made that transition, got published, and and then the books started uh, rolling out and my career started opening out. I came over here to Tasmania in 1984 for the Tasmanian Poetry Festival in Launceston, mm. and they offered me uh, $20 and <laughs> a car from Rent-A-Rec to uh, drive down to Battery Point and do a reading in a hall in Battery Point. Uh, and we came down, myself and two other poets came down a car that boiled its guts out all the way. Um, it was certainly a, a rent-a-wreck by name and by fame. And we got down to, to Battery Point and they didn't want to pay us the, the $20 because they hadn't got many people at the hall. Anyway, we coerced them into paying the money. And, yeah, definitely. Um, it was a contract. <laughs> it was a contract. And... Uh, uh, I start. I, I realised how nice Hobart was because I'd only been to Launceston. I thought I want to come back here. I came back here in '84, 
and did a reading at Knopwood's uh, Hotel uh, with uh, Bruce Roberts, who was a, uh, a poet and dairy farmer. He's now a full-time dairy farmer. He's given the poetry away. But he and I are both very much around the same age. He's uh, just a little bit younger than me. We're both very competitive men. We're both very ego-driven, I suppose. And uh, so we were uh, locking horns and uh, uh, we had a great time together and we finished up lifelong friends. And, mm. and I now go and stay on his farm in Flowerdale every year. Uh, it, it encouraged me to, to find a way to come down here. Friends got me down in 1987 and I had a big write-up in the Mercury and I thought... Uh, Tasmania is a place I could get to from Adelaide and uh, that I felt comfortable in uh, and there was a contrast from Adelaide because Adelaide is sort of flat and, you know, yeah. it's very hilly here. So yes. I always felt comfortable here. I liked the schools mm. and I liked the people that I've met in the schools and uh, I've just made it an annual cycle and I used to come down later in the year when the... Uh, uh, three-term yeah. uh, deal was going, but since the four terms, it's come back to the uh, always February for Hobart, March for Lonnie. It's a beautiful time of the year in Hobart. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you for that introduction, and uh, perhaps I could ask you a few questions that some students have put forward. The first sure. one's uh, a really good one. Um, what inspired you to become a poet? I didn't know what else I could do. I, I thought, how am I going to make an income lying in bed? Because I started to write when I was totally incapacitated mm. and I thought, I've got three kids, I've got to support them. What are they going to, going to do? And I lay around in bed and I thought, maybe um, I could write poetry. When I started writing, I thought, mm. maybe I could. And people said, oh, you never make a, a living as a poet which encouraged me. Then I went to uni. Uh, my, my back came good. I went to uni and people kept saying that you'll never make a living as a poet. And uh, I said, well, I want to have a crack at it. And away I went and it's taken me around the world. You know, I've been mm. to Cuba, to Canada mm. seven times, America eight times, to China, to most countries in Europe and the UK. Uh, so I've had a big life uh, from it. Yeah. And it would have never happened unless I hurt my back. And mm. I can remember my brother coming over one day with his injured back and uh, telling me that he couldn't get his uh, steel cap boots on in the morning. He said, the best thing that ever happened to you was hurting your back and mm. being able to get out of the building industry. Yeah. And it certainly was. So I guess words were your refuge and then you had a lot of determination to prove people wrong and to exactly. say that, that you can make a, a living writing from poetry and it's opened yeah. up the world to you. Yeah. Yeah, great. So I, I could see too how powerful language uh, is at that point mm. and and I'd always seen power as something physical. I've been brought up in a physical world and... I'd been made to think of power as a physical act and then I could see poetry as being powerful and words are so powerful, the right words in the right order and that's what poetry is about, the right words in the right order. Mm. Yeah, that's that's really simple but really helpful, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. So the next question is pretty much related but it is a little bit different. It's how do you come up with the ideas for your poems? Well, I look around, you know, I'm writing about my world and I'm writing about how I interact with the world. Um, uh, a good example of this would be uh, 
the first time I went to first time I went to Germany on a tour of universities, I stayed with uh, Professor Eckhart Breitinger, mm-hmm. and uh, in the first morning, I for a couple of days I didn't have anything to do at the uni, but. Professor Eckhart caught up and said, oh, come on, we are going to the castle and took me off to this 12th century castle and we stayed there for the day looking at, through the castle and it bored me uh, senseless, you know. We've gone home the next morning, he's, oh, come on, we are going out, you know, I'm taking you out. And uh, he took me out again and we went to a 13th century castle somewhere and again I was bored. And the next morning he's, oh, come on, get up, we are going, you know. And I said, listen, Eckhart, come closer to me, please. I said, my father is 75 years of age. I said, I don't understand my father. I come from a country that's 200 years old. And I said, uh, you know, I'm not really interested in 12th or or 13th century uh, castles. I said, what I am is I'm a people person. I want to talk to people. I said, you lead me to the refectory. I said, leave me in the cafeteria. I said, I'll find students to talk to. I'll engage them in a conversation and I'll get poems. And I've published a couple of poems from that day spent at the university um, yeah. just from observing people and then chatting pe- chatting to people and uh, hearing about their lives. And I want to write about people's lives. I'm interested in how people live their life, you know. Mm. I know how I live my life, but I know a lot of people live, you know, vastly different lives to mine and uh, I want to look into their lives. Satisf- uh, endlessly fascinating, yeah. Yeah. And often what I'm doing is writing about just a moment in time, mm. but I'm putting a spotlight on that moment so it looks like I'm writing about a lifetime. But in fact, I'm writing about, you know, yeah. bang, yeah. Uh, just a snap. Okay. That's that's really helpful because we all have moments every day, don't we, with exactly. that in our own lives and interacting with others. So yeah. it's not so, you don't have to go and visit a, 17th, a 13th century castle to write a poem. No, I mean you can look out of a car window and see a street scene. Um, yeah. My poem, An Uncertain Future, mm. came through observation. Mm. So it's close observation and careful listening. Yeah. Observation and listening, that's really helpful. Come up with ideas from observation and listening. Thank you. Um, I really like the way this student has framed this question. Do you think from experience? Do I think from experience? It's a tricky one, isn't it? Yeah. I suppose you've always got that experience to fall back on uh, uh, and maybe that comes to the forefront at times. But I think I live in the moment. Mm-hmm. Uh, and But I suppose through that dra- through the drafting process and the drafting process is, is the most important part of the writing process and for many students they think that they can just write one draft and they will, you know, create uh, something that is uh, marvellous and will be recognised in another 100 years. I think that is a thought out there. <laughs> yes, definitely. Yeah. <laughs> um, but I think everything that I write would be drafted generally a, a, a minimum of four times but probably five or six times. I, I would uh, very seldom publish a poem under uh, five or six drafts. I think you showed us a th- an 11th draft yeah, this I did. morning. Yeah, yes, yeah. yes. Awesome. Yeah, no. So I guess your so drawing, that thinking yeah. process comes in when you're doing that drafting process. You're you using that reflective thought and going back on yeah. on the history that you've okay. got and bring that to the page. Yes. Yeah. Oh, that's perfect. So we we get our ideas in the moment. Yeah. And then we use our experience to craft to guide and refine us and, and yeah. guide. Oh, that's that's really helpful. Um, 
And a very similar but also slightly variant, do you speak from experience? I always speak from experience. I don't write about what I don't know about. I can't write about going to see the man in the moon because I don't know how to get there. I don't know who I'd see on the way and I don't have a fictional quality to my mind. Mm. Uh, I want to write about the things that have impacted upon Mm. me, things that send the hair on the back of my neck standing up, things that make me feel angry, Mm. things that make me feel happy or sad Mm. or uh, Mm. melancholic Mm. or um, whatever. Mm. Um, So I write from personal experience and... uh, I think uh, your poetry... Uh, the word authentic has really been uh, attached to your poetry. Uh, I, I guess that's where you're coming from, that it's realistic and that you're um, trying to serve the the reality that you've observed or listened to. Yeah, I'm trying to hold up a mirror to life and mm. shine on the page. And, and when I'm writing, I'm thinking in photographic images, so mm. I'm thinking of putting little snapshots down on the page so... Every, every stanza is a little snapshot of what I've seen. Mm. Often we begin to tell things when we start writing and, again, that's what the drafting process is. Mm. You know, you, you can write it down but you might tell it but then you have to look through it in the drafting process and say, am I telling this or am I showing this? Mm. And what you need to do, of course, is to show it to mm. people. You need to create pictures in people's minds. And then they can bring their experience to your poem, can't they? And, That's right. and make their own meaning. Yeah. Um, the mirror idea I, I really love and it it goes, goes back to Shakespeare in, in Hamlet. Shakespeare, uh, Hamlet says um, the purpose of playing is to hold a mirror up to nature and, and show all its beauty but it also its flaws. And yeah. I guess that you've really... I'm showing of, more the flaws, yeah. Yeah. And that's not to say that... You know, I'm uh, just an angry little ant. Uh, I can have a red face and be quite angry, but I'm quite a complex individual too. And uh, I'll be flying home uh, tonight at six o'clock. Tomorrow morning, I'll be having breakfast at Central Market. Before I go home, my last stop will be at the flower stall. I'll buy two bunches of flowers, and there'll be a bunch of flowers in my kitchen and a bunch of flowers inside my. Uh, front door, um, you know, I've got uh, probably $100,000 worth of art on the walls that I've collected over mm. the past 40 years. I really like nice things, but I don't write about those things. I don't write about a field full of flowers or a vase of flowers. Uh, I write about more the horror, th- the horror of life, the things that have a much more profound effect on me mm. because I take love for granted. I take the nice things in life for granted, but some of the things that I'm writing about I want rubbed out of our society and they're the things that that will be I'll be much more inclined to uh, uh, to write about okay thank you um, uh, how how important are connections in life and the feeling that you're not alone I thought that was a really really good question uh, connections are very important and um, you know, a lot of people would never be working unless uh, there was uh, a, a connection there for uh, from someone. Mm. Um, my my work has uh, received a lot of endorsement from people in the uh, justice system in South Australia. My uh, biggest bank of supporters in South Australia would be people um, that are judges, magistrates, uh, QCs, barristers. 
lawyers, people that are representing the people that I often write about, mm. and they have been very useful connections for me. They've opened doors into places and mm. uh, and assisted me to uh, to have my you know have a, a poem in the um, Supreme Court in Hobart. Mm and 13 poems up around South Australian courts, poems also in Queensland courts. Mm. Uh, and uh, I'm going back to, to South Australia perhaps next week to assist in the opening of the, the revamped uh, Supreme Court of South Australia. Mm. Um, so your poems have connected you to uh, the sort of um, authority figures, but you've also connected connected, as you said, to people who come into conflict with those authority yeah. figures. Can you, I love the story of your 70th birthday because it shows that through your poetry you've connected both of those groups um, in a really wonderful way. Yeah, yeah, my 70th birthday was quite a celebration. The Chief Justice of South Australia uh, cooked a pig on the spit and the Chief Magistrate from the Elizabeth Magistrates Court did the sheep on the spit and and uh, when everyone was uh, sitting around the tables eating at one table, you know, there were other uh, judges and magistrates there also and there were a table full of judges and magistrates and at the next table uh, there was a bloke who'd uh, robbed two chemist shops with, uh, with a knife in the 1970s. Uh, there was an old uh, bank robber. Uh, there was a bloke that had grown a crop of marijuana to save the family farm. Um, uh, just a mob of uh, old crims that weren't really bad people, uh, nice people, but had done stupid things mm. at various times in their life and had straightened themselves out and that I consider, you know, very close friends, mm. equally as close as, uh, as the judiciary. And mm. they were sitting uh, on adjoining tables and... And we were talking the following day about uh, what a wonderful party it was mm. and, and what a wonderful mixture of people mm. and how lucky I was to have had such a, a, a terrific life with exposure to those people. Mm. But I think, too, that my upbringing, uh, you know, my father was an alcoholic uh, and he would often ring up Sir Mark Oliver, who was the governor of South Australia, and my father, by occupation, was a technical and scientific glassblower. So he's a very clever man, but mm. very self-destructive. And he made all the medical equipment for Oliphant Laboratories in the early days of mm. of um, uh, Oliphant Laboratories, I suppose. And, mm. and then Sir Mark went on to become the governor. But, you know, the old man would be half tanked and he'd ring up Sir Mark and so Mark would have a chat to me on the phone and wow. so I knew that I could talk to people out mm. of my station mm. uh, through the experiences of my father and, you know, the way that he lived his life uh, mm. uh, was an unusual life. Mm. Mm. Um, uh, so would you say your poems make the story of your life? Oh, they do. Uh, they tell my story sometimes directly and sometimes indirectly. Mm -hmm. I mean, the things that I'm writing about are the things that matter to me and the things, you know, there but for the grace of God go mm -hmm. I and all that. Um, I'm writing about people who have had similar upbringings to me but have taken different paths, uh, but I realise how close I might have been to taking that wrong path too. Mm. Um and I think the majority of writing is done by middle-class people in Australia who have got a different range of experiences to bring to the page. But I think all sorts of uh, lives need to be recorded too. Mm. Um, 
you know, middle-class people can go to a private school, they can have a very green lawn, they can never have a toothache and never have wet socks because they've got leaky shoes. Mm. And, you know, when they finally finish their year 12 degree and go to uni and and get their first degree and then do the creative writing degree and, and then release their first book at, you know, 28 years of age, they're writing about their middle-class experience. But what I want to do is encourage people from out of suburbia to write about their experience too and mm. record that. Uh, I've got a book of short stories which will be coming out the middle of the year um, or probably around about August this year with Wakefield Press and uh, a lot of the stories in in there are insiders' accounts of, you know, working-class life. So mm. uh, uh, one of the stories is uh, what Harry what Harry taught me. So the moral messages that I learned from working mm-hmm. with Harry, who was a, a Latvian mm-hmm. uh, a migrant who would have arrived in Australia in the uh, late 50s, um, and it's an insider's account of working in a butcher shop mm-hmm. in suburban Adelaide. Now, uh, most uh, middle-class people won't have worked in butcher shops, so I'm bringing something yeah. to the page. I'm bringing that in insider I've got the insider knowledge mm. uh, and I'm not embarrassed to, to write about those mm. things. I want to write about those things because uh, I think too that a lot of butchers would go out and buy that book yeah. and read that story and, and see themselves mirrored off yes. the page and think, yeah, yeah, that was like my apprenticeship. Yes. And that People make connections and yeah. people want to make connections. And, and I guess you're also saying by writing a story, about someone or writing a poem about someone, you're saying, this person taught me something. I learned yeah. something from yeah. that person. And he that, taught me some good things yes. and some bad things yeah. and I've reflected both of those yeah. in that story. You know, there's mixed moral messages come through in mm. that story and I think that's important too to mm. uh, to realise that, you know, you don't get it all from one person. Mm. You, you've got to pick and choose and take, um, be selective mm. about what you take on board for the rest of your life. <clears throat> what I'm trying to do, I suppose, is write about moral issues but not provide moral imperatives. Yeah, yeah. It's very and, important and it's, it's a little bit like showing and telling, isn't it? Yeah. You're showing the problem and yeah. you're inviting a response. But you're, you're not, not jamming it down yeah. people's throats and saying this is how it's got to be because there's no one right way to, mm. to, to anything, whether it be writing a poem or uh, any, any part of life. You know, there are always different tangents that you can take, uh, but what I'm doing is providing an overview of the perspective that I have witnessed, mm. and leaving it for my readers to think oh, I've seen that too. I can relate to that, or I can't relate to that, or I uh, I've heard about that. But that will give me that his view gives me a, a much better insight and a much better grounding of of how that culture works. Mm. Um. Here's a quite a specific one. Do you find it easy to give poems a title? Uh, not always and often, but I always have to have a title mm. before I start writing something. I like to have something at the top of the page. Yeah. Um, but often the title will change after, but I need to have some sort of tag for it. Mm. And then I normally look through the poem and take uh, two or three words from the poem and use that as the, the title. Right. Okay. So you get you, you kind of have a working title to start with. So you don't get hung up. You just got to have something to 
pin your ideas yeah. on. Yeah. My poem, uh, Monologue to a Wayward Niece, which I read today to the students, uh, that started off as Instructions to a Wayward Niece. And then I thought instructions to it's too um, too uh, narrow, too yeah, limited. too narrow. But monologue to a wayward niece mm-hmm. works much better, mm-hmm. and it also says to students, "This is a monologue, and the students can recognise that a monologue is one voice coming at you." Mm-hmm. And um, uh, I think it's just a process for mm-hmm. students. And the poem, again, aesthetically is set on the page in a different way to how I would write a poem. My mm. poems are uh, separated by a lot of stanzas. Mm. I have a lot of small stanzas, sometimes one-line stanzas, mm. but the monologue is boxed up uh, because it's one voice coming at you. There's no confusion about who's speaking. You'll be able to work out who's speaking after you've read mm. uh, a few lines of it. Mm. And um, It's an outpouring. Yeah. Mm. Absolutely. Um Jeff, do you think that there's an advantage of writing poetry rather than prose? Um, well, I like I, I prefer writing poetry rather than rather than prose because with a poem you've got something that is immediately transportable, uh, and what you've got to do is give a series of headlines. And I see poetry as more a series of headlines. Uh, where prose you fill in all the details and then Mm. this happened and then that happened. Mm. You make quantum jumps in a, quantum leaps in a poem. Mm. Um, So I like to think it as a a series of of headlines and uh, with a a poem I can uh, memorise a poem if I uh, work hard uh, and then I've got something that is immediately transportable Mm-hmm. Uh, and I don't need to be lugging uh, a big, big book around. Book around with me, yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, I like the fact that you can say a lot in a poem, and it can be on one page or two mm. pages, and you can put it in your pocket, mm. and it's, it, big, it's yeah. there on paper, or you can uh, memorize it and carry it with you. Mm. And I think that skill of uh, uh, memorizing poems and carrying things with you is a skill that has perhaps been lost to the mm. generation that we're in now um, because they've got so so many alternatives with technology to play with. Look that, it up. Yeah, yeah, mm. everything's there. Mm. Yeah. Mm. Uh, and uh, do you think that my, uh, poetry has a musical quality to it? Yeah, definitely. Um, uh, you know, I write free verse poetry, poetry that doesn't rhyme but poetry that works off the rhythm of natural speech. Mm. And... When I uh, I try to write the first four or five lines of a poem in my head before I commit them to mm. a page, mm-hmm. uh, so my process is to uh, to get some thoughts revolving, think about how the poem is going to go on the page, start to hear it inside mm. my head, but then when I've started to hear it inside my head, then I will write it write it onto a sheet of paper. But if I were to put a piece of paper in front of me and think I have to write a poem cold, mm. you know, I'd be looking at it and I'd be, you know, uh, beaten by mm. the fact that I've got a lot of empty, empty lines there, yeah. okay. you know. But yeah. if I can come to the page Pages. with a preconceived idea and I've I've had that turning around in my head and I write those four or five lines down and then I read those four or five lines aloud, which is my process, Yes, I will then hear the music that's, that's mm. in the lines and that music will then dictate yes. the rest of the poem. So I'll write four or five lines and I'll write by hand. I won't write on a word processor, mm. always by hand with a writing instrument because you can think a lot better 
with a pen or a pencil in your hand. Read those four or five lines out. Then I'll add another four or five lines, but I'll read the eight or ten lines that I've got. I'll read from the top mm. and I'll keep adding to it and I'll keep reading from the top. Yes. Adding to it, reading from the top. Always looking for that musical quality, that rhythmical quality, mm. not necessarily a regular rhyme scheme, mm. but uh, a rhythm uh, mm. that that works musically so that there are not jars mm. happening and and by reading the work aloud... Uh, you're going to hear that music start to happen. Mm. Oh, that's really helpful. Um, uh, do you think that a person needs to know a lot of poetic techniques to write poetry? I don't. <laughs> I certainly don't, you know, and I'll still put my hand up for that. I remember when my son Shane, now my boys are 50 and 48 and 42, but Shane came home one day and he said, uh, and I'd been publishing, I'd published uh probably two books at that stage, and he said, uh, I've got to write a poem with metaphor in it. What's metaphor? I said, I'm a I know, get the dictionary. <laughs> and, you know, he got the dictionary and, and I started laughing. And he's saying to me, you should know, you're a poet. And I mm. said, look, you, know, you don't need to know the technique. Get the dictionary, we'll have a look. And, and then uh, he got the dictionary and I won't uh, repeat the metaphor that I said to him because we're on air. <laughs> yeah. uh, but he laughed and he said, yeah, uh, good dad, okay, I know what to do now. And away he went. But there's so and, many metaphors in, in everyday speech and as particularly in the colloquial language. Uh, exactly. Of, of, and uh, and yeah. the rhyming slang. Yeah, and yeah. All of that. And I trade in that sort yes, of language. Yes. I mean, uh, if I'm going to write about a working class culture, I'm going to phrase my poetry mm. in the language of the working class mm. too, and I'll, you know, have a big tendency to to use slang and colloquial phrases. And in fact, I was out at um, Risdon Jail last year on my uh, annual tour, and the um, literacy person that took me into the uh, library to run my session at Risdon said, uh, I haven't had time to alert anyone to the fact that you're coming, so can you introduce yourself and try and find an audience? Uh, uh, no pressure. And I thought, oh, that's good, you know. Yeah. Anyway, I got in there and I started going wah, 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 wah to the blokes using the language that I would use if I was in the northern suburbs of Adelaide and using a lot of rhyming slang, not thinking about it. And I noticed this woman sitting down, she's writing madly, writing, 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 writing. And anyway, I attracted a, a good audience. I did my session and then when we left the, the, the jail, she said, you'll notice that I was writing first up. I said, yeah, what were you writing? She said, I was writing all that rhyming slang that you are using. She said, uh, oh, I, I know a little bit of it, but nowhere near what you do. Is there any way that you could write me a list? And when I got, I said, yeah, yeah, yeah no worries. When I get home, I'll, I'll get onto it and I'll, I'll type something up and send it to you. And I've just been adding to that list yeah. now and I've got four pages wow. of uh, A4 chock-a-block with uh, rhyming slang, just purely rhyming slang, mm. um, not uh, colloquial speech patterns but just mm. the rhyming mm. slang. Uh, and I've, I've sent it over to her and yeah. she's using it at the jail to yeah. talk to blokes about yeah. how they can use that. Um, and eventually maybe, you know, I'll get that stuff that I'm writing published. And uh, for my birthday uh, in September last year, I was given a book of uh, convict slang mm. uh, that mm. came out last year and uh, I'm probably halfway through that just dipping in and dipping out of mm. that uh, and that's interesting but I think the the stuff that I've been writing to 
uh, you know, there'll be a market for it. Uh, mm. And it's quickly disappearing from uh, Australian life because we're so influenced by American film and mm. television and uh, rap music mm. and the language is different and language is an evolving thing. Mm. It's always changing Dynamic. and, mm. you know, uh, there's always going to be... That's a wonderfully exciting thing about language, isn't it? Yeah, it is. Yeah. And I think there's a few lines of rhyming slang in the poem to your brother. Can you just say a couple of those or or where you've used? Can you remember? Yeah, the, the opening lines to the poem for my brother. Blue was a white ox man, dead at 60, Jack Dancer of the Nanny Goat. None of us overly surprised. So Jack Dancer of the Nanny Goat, Cancer of the Throat. Mm which is what he would say, you know. Highly uh, metaphorical. Yeah, and uh, Blue, you know, his nickname was Blue because he's got red hair and blue eyes, so he was always called Blue. So mm. instead of Mark, uh, yeah. Blue. Yeah. He smoked white ox tobacco, white ox tobacco, commonly smoked at uh, Risdon or mm. Yatler or Pentridge or Long Bay or any other jail in Australia. Always a giveaway if you see someone smoking white ox, you know that they've probably done a bit of a lagging somewhere, a bit of a lagging, again, yes, yes. you know, a colloquial term. Yeah, yeah. And I love the use of the um, Jack Queen or King Ace, Ace uh, yeah. in, in the po- in, is in it the that poem. crowd control, yes, the poem that, about the bouncer. Yeah. I He's think not scared by aces, jokers, clubs or jacks. You know, it could be the ace fighter from the Chala Gardens coming down to have a go. Uh, jokers could be the gypsy jokers turning up on the yeah. Harley Davison's. Yeah. Uh, clubs. Uh, it can be the people that came back to the pub one night with baseball bats mm. and started smashing the windows. Mm. Um, and jacks, jacks are coppers that don't wear uniforms. So aces. Yes, yeah, it's beautiful. Jokers, clubs or jacks, but it takes a little bit of thinking for people. Well, that's, and some people will miss it. Yeah, but it's 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 rich and it opens up possibilities and it's a, an example of language that can be interpreted in, in more than one way, which is... Exactly, which is what poetry is. Exactly, yeah. yeah. So um, did, you, did your son manage to write his metaphorical poem? <laughs> yeah, yeah, he managed and yeah. uh, you know, he That's was the awesome. uh, uh, president of the SRC for year 12 and, oh. um, and got expelled when I was overseas. Oh, <laughs> right. But he'd, re- he'd yeah. written a metaphorical poem. <laughs> he got That's the metaphorical good. poem out, yeah. <laughs> That's great. Um what about punctuation? What do you think about punctuation in poetry? Well, there are some people that say that I don't punctuate my poems. You but do, you do. Uh, they're completely you know, idiots, of course. Uh, I do punctuate <laughs> yes. my poems, but I punctuate it a different way. Mm. Uh, and what I do is uh, I don't use um, commas, I don't use colons, I don't use semicolons, I use indents. Mm. Uh, so indented line spaces from the margin, seven taps on the space bar, which creates a space. So what I'm doing is setting up a script for the page. Mm. So anyone that has heard me read poetry should be able to read, pick up one of my poems, uh, regardless of me being present, and hear something like my voice uh, working. Mm. Uh, a dash is a short pause. An ellipsis, three full stops, is a long pause. Mm. Um I I don't use uh, inverted commas, 66 and 99s, you know, they're mm. out. I change to an italic font and that indicates mm. that there's a speaker. 
um, if there are two speakers in the poem, there will be lots of stanzas in the poem because I'll separate every speaker so that uh, confusion doesn't reign supreme or you have to say, you know, Jeff said and Brian said and Mm. Jeff said and then, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So make it, uh, keep it simple. Yeah. Um, uh, I don't write the word and. I use an ampersand and mm-hmm. uh, on the on the keyboard. Uh, I start every poem off with a capital letter, but thereafter there are likely to be no capital letters through the poem, unless, of course, I'm writing a name. But if I was writing your name, Alison, there would be a capital A for Alison to signify that it's you, a person. Mm-hmm. If uh, I were writing about someone having brill cream in their hair, there would be a capital B for the brill cream. Mm. If I was writing about a suburb like Sandy Bay, there'd be a capital S and a capital B uh, rather than lowercase letters there to make it easy. But generally, there would be lowercase letters throughout and the I's, all of the I's apart from the very first letter of the poem uh, would be a lowercase okay. I because I'm just a small I, I'm just a little I, I'm no better or bigger than anyone else. Mm. So I don't, don't try to set myself apart by having a capital I. Very democratic approach to punctuation. Oh, what a man, eh? That's great, (laughs) yeah. No, that's really helpful. And it sort of shows that there's punctuation and setting out that really those things matter and they... um, they reinforce. They what add the trying. meaning. Yeah, add the, the meaning. meaning. Yeah, uh, I, I occasionally have internal line spacings too, where I'll go seven taps on the space bar in the mm-hmm. middle of a line, where there would be normally a comma, mm. but they are reading pauses mm-hmm. where people could count one, two, three, and continue yeah, to yeah. read. Okay. So they're just little breaks. Yeah. And that, that's kind of, there's a bit of drama there or a bit of time for reflection. Yeah. yeah. So what I'm trying to do is set the poem on the page like a script for mm, the voice. Mm. And I'm cognizant too of the aesthetic appearance of the poem on the page. I don't want the poem to have, to look like it's got a little head and a big fat uh, behind or mm. a big buff head and mm. a little skinny bum, you know. Mm. I want it to have some balance down the page. Yeah. Yeah, so the look of it. The look of it is important and the line breaks are important Mm. too Mm. as rhythmically but also as far as meaning goes and often the line that is uh, uh, below another informs the line that's above. Right. Yeah, okay. And I guess if you separate a line to a single line, that's a way of emphasising it. Really pushes home a point, yeah. Beautiful. All right. Um, I also don't use ex- ex- uh, exclamation marks. Uh, I'll leave them out because I don't think you need them. I don't generally uh, use a question mark because I think that's always obvious. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so you've stripped it back to what I've you... I've paired it back to the bare minimum. Yeah. 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 Oh, wonderful. That's really helpful too. And, Jeff, just probably my last question is, how does it make you feel when you've written a poem? Highly elated. You mm. feel, you know, you feel like oh, I've, I've done it again, you know. Like, oh, <laughs> a miracle. I, I haven't lost it, you know. Like, yeah. There yeah. are times that, you, you you know, everyone is full of self-doubt, I suppose, yeah. too. Uh, the only people that are not full of self-doubt are stupid. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, but um, often, you know, I, I don't sit down and write every day and a lot of people think as a poet, you know, do you sit down every day of the week? I 
I write a poem when I want to write a poem. Mm. I don't ever force it. I mm. wait for it to arrive. When it arrives, I'll grab it. And mm. normally, you know, I'm 70 years of age. Most of my writing now is done in bed. So um, I have a clipboard alongside the bed. I have pencils, sharp pencils alongside the bed. And I might go to bed at 10 o'clock at night with an idea and have the idea turning around in my head. And by 2 o'clock in the morning, I've got pretty mm. good concept of how the poem Mm. might fit onto Mm. a page. It's been happening in my head and I've Mm. gone through it and I'll quite happily lean over, turn on the bedside lamp, grab the clipboard, reach out and grab the pencil and Mm. I'll I'll write it at that point. So advice would be to find a a comfy place where you're just happy to sort of sit and... I always thought that I had to write in the dining room of my house and I always thought that I had to clear the table and I, you know, I did that for a number of years and then I got cancer and then when I got cancer, I came home and I'd made a commitment to uh, Dr Guy Rees, who was my um, ENT specialist. He said to me, part of your therapy is going to be to write about your experience and he said, doctors don't very often get critiqued. I would like you to write some poems mm. that puts these doctors under the spotlight. Mm. He said, you're very able to give critical uh, mm. advice, as you've done in the past. Mm. And uh, he said, you know, this is going to be part of your therapy. And I was at home for a few weeks and uh, it was going through my head and I thought I have to get up and, and it was winter and mm. I thought I have to go downstairs and that room is cold and I thought I could write in bed and I thought I can't write with a burrow in bed because a burrow will keep running out if I'm lying down. Mm. But I thought I could write with a pencil so I got set up with pencil and from there on most of the poems have been written in bed yeah, yeah. Uh, and I've realised that that dining room table experience, you know, facing... Yeah, you know, due north and yeah. all the little idiosyncratic things that you bring to four bring to the fore over the course of your life are, are rubbish anyway. You can write anywhere. Yeah, yeah. Um but I write where I'm comfortable and mm-hmm. I am comfortable in bed. I mm-hmm. I love it. Safe, warm, yeah, comfy, yeah, yeah, excellent. Everything. Jeff, thanks so much for all of that. We've covered so many topics it's been really wonderful and I think you've given a lot of advice and hopefully a lot of confidence to the students to have a go at writing poetry and a lot of reasons to write poetry Um, could you finish up by uh, reading one of your poems for us please I think that's a bit too much of an ask Alison of course I can and uh, what about if I read uh, Semaphore that's got that's a poem where it's a love poem to my suburb it's uh, a poem that carries uh, a certain authority in the voice and uh, it's a poem that I love reading because I love where I come from. Thanks. Semaphore. perfect. Semaphore, you're so full of bad taste, you've half convinced me you're good taste. But I love your semaphore. You have a main street that wanders down to the sea like a good old-fashioned country town. Maybe you are a country town, Semaphore, lost on the outskirts of a city. But Semaphore... Don't be embarrassed. You are the only suburb in the city where people can still shop in their pyjamas without being gigged. Semaphore, you are so unpretentious, so upfront honest, that at times you delight me. Semaphore, you're all larrikins in character. If you're not a manic depressive or a schizophrenic, if you're not a liberal, a labour, a pinker or a greenie, if you're not a lesbian, separatist, feminist, a lipstick lesbian or a builder's labourer, if you're not a Rolls-Royce driver or a Kingswood owner, 
If you're not a Catholic, an Anglican, a Pentecostal, an agnostic, if you're not a Renton or an owner, if you're not a yuppie, a trendoid, a straight, a gay, a tranny, a drunk, an addict or a deadbeat, if you don't have a ring on your finger or through your nose, your eyebrow, your nipple or your foreskin, if you don't dig hip-hop, bebop, blues, acid, jazz, funk, rockabilly, rap, techno, jungle, ska, reggae, pop, house or classical, chances are Semaphore is not yet ready for you. Semaphore, you are so laid back, I'm sure there are days when everyone is so relaxed that no one in the suburb wakes up. Semaphore, you confuse me summer by inviting me in for a swim, but then you make me walk a mile just to get my thighs wet. You're a tea semaphore, but you tease others too. You let your jetty shrink each winter, and in summer, when half of South Australia have stubbed a toe on a boardwalk, no one wants to say they own it. You tease and you shame. You've teased so many of your old age pensioners by putting poker machines on Semaphore Road. But you've shamed yourself too, Semaphore. You have denied so many of your invalid pensioners a sporting chance at the Whizbang Centre. Or is walking down Semaphore Road with your hand out considered to be cultural tourism? Maybe, Semaphore, you need to direct that question to the Liberal Government. But why do these pensioners ask for anything, Semaphore? Maybe fish patties and mashed potatoes, stale cakes and stale bread, cold showers and no soap, cold rooms in winter and hot boxes in summer, 365 days a year are boring. Nothing too liberal about that lot. Semaphore, I came to you in the 60s when your pubs were full of warfish and your road was frantic. Now the wharf's used for little more than fishing. Your front bars are as empty as your churches and your road is frantic for other reasons. I saunter now and enjoy and save you, Semaphore. I've got time to stop in your otherwise bland footpath and talk to Bobby and listen to his repetitive chatter. I've got time to stop outside of larrikins and dance with Dorothy while she sings tiptoe through the tulips. I've got time to stop outside Flower Power Bakery and say good morning, gentlemen, to Wally and hear him reply good morning, sir, and good morning to you too, young lady, to my four-year-old. And I've got time for Gerald. Posted once again outside the Federal and smacking his lips while waiting, waiting, waiting for enough to buy another can. And sure enough, as if on cue, as we draw near, he'll call out to my daughter, That's a lovely hat you're wearing today, my dear. You're a very good girl, aren't you? And I've got time to stop let Bob Lumley kiss me on the cheek if he needs to. That is, if he hasn't got Tom the Greengrocer already. And that's about the end of the option plan for Bob. And I've got time to look up at the flag flying for the mast of the RSL club and be challenged to consider what other freedoms we are still fighting for. And I've got time, too, to look up at the archangel watching over Semaphore Road from the Esplanade and I contemplate the comfort she might give to some of the outstretched wings. And I've had time strolling down Semaphore Road toward the Esplanade to recognise that the Chinese maple trees that sit in pairs all along the median strip are weaker by the time they hit the coast, by the time they hit the edge, by the time they have no other place to go. Thanks so much, Jeff, and all the best. Thank you, Alison.